Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew who you were. Girls were girls and men were men. Mister, we could use a man like over again. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. She are old Just your set, ladies and gentlemen. This is The Long Road to Ruin, recorded live before a studio audience. And, of course, my uh, duet partner on that little ditty, Mr. Sean Comer, how do you do? Yeah, normally you like to call me the man who brings life back to music. I think I am the man that just made ears bleed over a million MacBooks that are worth more than I am. I like how we were always like a step behind one another on that. <laughs> you know what? Uh, couldn't couldn't the, have played it better is, if I though, tried. The, the thing is, though, that is not one of the TV theme songs that I can remember easily right off the top of my head. So for somebody who pretty much just learned that 10 minutes ago, and as you can tell from listening to me on a regular basis, does not have that in Gene Stapleton's vocal range. Um, Mark, I am quite happy on this occasion to uh, be your dingbat with hair like a meathead. <laughs> so you might be wondering, Long Road to Ruin audience, and we are going to get to um, the film of the night, which is a franchise of the night, which, of course, is the First Blood slash Rambo franchise. We're going to talk about First Blood and First Blood Part 2, Rambo, uh, in a few moments. Now, uh, as you normally, there there are two things going on here. Normally, I play music at the top of the show to kind of set the tone for the for the movie, and there wasn't there probably was if I really if I really thought about it. But there, to me, there just didn't seem to be music that really popped out and goes, "That's Rambo," you know. Well, I just you know we we know Rambo for the screaming and we for the monologues and for the knife. Those are all very visual things, um, but. I don't know necessarily if the music is that well-known. So I was going to play Rambo's closing monologue from First Blood, and I thought, well, that's not really a fun way to start the show. I mean, we, we need to hear it to discuss the movie, but I feel like that, that we, we should play that later on, and we will. So I thought, well, what else, how are we, we going to start tonight's show? Should I just get into it? And I said, at work this week, and this is the second part of it, um, I, I'm kind of an odd duck, as you may have guessed, and... One of the odd quirks that I. <laughs> one of my odd quirks. Mark, uh, let me sum up that understatement with one question. Are you wearing pants this time? Not even a little bit. Gentlemen, the prosecution rests. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I tend to sing a lot while I'm at work. And may I remind you that I work in the county jail with murderers and rapists and uh, trespassers and burglars and, you know, people in gangs, et cetera. 
uh, people who have been to prison multiple times, and I and of course the sheriff's office, which is mostly um, good old boys from the south and good old women from the south. So, you know, they don't cotton to no Broadway singing and carrying on. Meanwhile, I can't be stopped and I won't be silenced. So I'll walk around the jail singing, <laughs> singing everything from Perfect Slumber Party from uh, Sophia the First to whatever eighties ditty happens to pop into my head. Oh yes. Oh, I have been known to uh, to do that. You know, I was because I've been on Robert Winfrey's show lately, and I've been listening to some of his past shows. I've been running around going, "I'm the fly in your soup, I'm the devil in your poop," because I don't know what the next line is. And um, you know, so I've been singing a lot of Voltaire. But uh, over the last twenty-four hours, I have been running up to people and saying to them, "Didn't need no welfare state," and then pointing at them, demanding that, that everyone that, that that they belt out. Everybody pulled his weight, and no one knows what the fuck I'm talking about. Okay, <laughs> one per one person at work who who is older than I am caught the reference and was able to at least sing part of that song. Nobody else has ever heard of All in the Family, or if they've heard of it, they sure shit don't remember the theme song. Kids ain't got no culture. No, they really don't. So, no. so uh, much like Honky, I'm bringing it back. Okay, I'm on a quest to get people to stop calling white people cracker and bring back honky because I think that's much more preferable. Uh, and I'm also on a quest to bring back all in the family. For God's sake, Mark, just don't try to bring back porch monkey. No, nope, somebody's already in charge of that department. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's me, Mark. I am ever the uh, I am ever the Randall to your Dante. And just as an aside, and then, we'll, then we really will get on with this, you, you, there is no denying that my daughter is genetically my child because we both do the same thing. We both will just start belting out random songs. We were in the car earlier, and she just started randomly doing the haircut song from Small Potatoes. I don't even remember the last time she watched Small Potatoes, but she was just in the car going, a haircut. A haircut, and it took us a minute to because re- I thought she was saying "I hate you," and I'm like, "Wait, what the hell is she singing?" And then we realized it was "Haircut" from Small Potatoes. So between me doing "All in the Family" and my daughter doing um, uh, a haircut, my wife is about ready to drive into oncoming traffic. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, the the random silliness of kids is one of the few things that occasionally, almost, almost. Almost makes me change my mind about wanting to have change my mind to being in favor of one day raising a little brood of Vinny Shans. They are a, a joy. They are a joy even at their worst. At least until they get older. I can only I can only speak as I can only speak for toddlers. And speaking of toddlers, let's get to Rambo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, speaking of speaking of tiny dangerous people, let's talk about Sylvester Stallone, shall we? Yeah, yes, yes we shall. Okay, so back in 1982, I believe it was, um, certainly when the movie came out, there was a movie based on a book of the same name written by uh, David Morrell called First Blood. And the whole thing about uh, First Blood was that we had this, a uh, little skirmish, little conflict that people may have heard about, especially in these yeah. dire times when, when our president is speaking to us tonight about the possibility of 
uh, bombing Syria. Well, back in the day, there was a little thing called the Vietnam War. And I'm not going to use this podcast to get into a whole thing about the Vietnam War, why we, you know, fought, should we have fought it, why we fought it the way we did. Um, that's a podcast for a different day um, under different circumstances. But I will tell you that a couple of things came out of that. One, um, well, the whole concept of shell shock, which we now today call post-traumatic stress disorder, was identified as far back as World Wars One and Two. Uh, and even to a degree before that, it wasn't until the Vietnam War that uh, medical professionals really started to take a look at soldiers returning from combat with uh, significant stress, you know, war stress, combat stress, etc. And it would come to be known as post-traumatic stress disorder. The other side of that was uh, soldiers returning from Vietnam who were then protested by the American public. They were called baby killers. They were uh, they were a lot of the anger that was on display in America was sort of uh, directed at the soldiers who had no more part in planning that war than um, you know than anybody else. I mean, they they essentially caught the rap for a war that they didn't ask for and certainly didn't plan. That you know, that well, it's it's Kennedy. it's something that. The- it's something of the people who are kind of in their teen years right now. Um, I don't want to call them the uh, the the new generation because really it's not like our generation birth, necessarily birthed them unless they got pregnant at about 15 or so. Um, but it's something that they might not really understand because their only real exposure to that has been seeing it, for the most part, in movies, um, seeing platoon seeing apocalypse now whereas mark people people about your age and mine um we had you know depending on who you are parents or uncles yep. who who actually fought in vietnam in fact uh um one of my one of my cousins in my family one of my dad's cousins i should say um lost a chunk of his thumb in vietnam um, my uh, my my father was stationed in Korea, um, but he was but that was during the Vietnam War. My uncle, my 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 maternal uncle was, I believe, in Vietnam. Did there used to be in this country a choice? If you did some you know small crime, some misdemeanor, a judge would tell you, well, you have two choices: I can either put you in jail, or you can go join the army. Yep. A lot of guys, a lot of guys ended up going into the military for just that reason. Um, where I was going with this was that you're absolutely right. I mean, most people don't understand the kind of world that the Vietnam soldiers um, came back into, and it was very, very well, negative. Yeah, let's, let, let's let's be clear, um, you, folks. You think there's hostility toward the idea of going to war now? Not even fucking close. Well, I'll tell you Not this: nobody came back from close. Desert Storm. Or um, nobody came back from Desert Storm or Desert Shield or the most recent Iraq War. Very few, at least, to my knowledge. I mean, outside of some like uh, some weirdo groups like the First Baptist, whatever, the, the ones who protest everything. Um, the Westboro Baptist, yeah. Yeah, the Westboro Baptist. Unless you have like some some groups like that, you very rarely hear stories about mass protests as soldiers returned home from Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now you. 
now you get like yellow ribbons, and there's there's much more of an eye on this sort of thing, and much more of an appreciation for the soldier. You know, the, you you always hear this from the Democrat side. Support the you know I support the soldiers, not the war, which you really can't. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, First Blood was an attempt to deal with all of these things in a I don't say fun, but in a cinematic fashion. So First Blood is the story of a Vietnam soldier who has come home, comes to find out that he is the last of his uh, troop, and then is har- and then as he's trying to find himself in this little town, he's harassed and bullied to a degree, tortured. At which point he snaps and resumes the um, character of the guerrilla fighter that he was in Vietnam and starts taking out the cops. Well, and, let's, and, and, well, let's and I should say he, he shouldn't take him out because he doesn't kill any of them. Well, and, and, and let's face it, he wasn't just harassed. We're not talking about like he got pelted with eggs or something or got or just had baby killer, baby killer shouted as him, at him as he wandered down the road. So uh, allow me to elaborate a little bit on what happens here. What happens is he's walking through the town quite literally just looking for a place where he can stop to get a bite to eat because he just found out the last member of his troop died of cancer months ago. So he's walking through town, and the portly stereotype sheriff, played by Brian Dennehy, comes rolling along, sees him wearing the olive green jacket, American flag patch sewn on it, Stallone is sporting quite long, shaggy hair at this point, kind of a signature Rambo do. And he pretty much warns him, people see you with that jacket, with that patch on with that patch on it, you're gonna be just looking you're gonna be just looking for trouble. Tell him he's just looking for a place to eat. Just looking for a bite, just looking to feed himself. Yeah, let, me, let me stop uh, you there. Today, if you walk through the streets with a jacket on and an American flag, people give you a thumbs up. So imagine yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the world we're looking at here back in 1982. Yeah, you know, this, this is not the world when soldiers come home and they've got a million and one charities that are falling over themselves to help them readjust civilian life, to help them acclimate and find a place in the workforce again in case they'd come home and found themselves jobless and still needing to support their families. There's nobody getting free front row WWE tickets. There are no UFC cards in their honor. This is back in the early 80s, and it's one of the things that's jarring to watch this. Even I was kind of jarred by it, even though I grew up hearing stories from my dad about my relatives who fought in World War II and Cousin Steve fighting over in Vietnam. Uh, pretty much what Brian Dennehy offers to do is herd Stallone into the front of his police car like a misbehaving Labrador puppy that nobody wants and offers to basically take him 30 minutes up the road and just let him off just to get him out of the town. Doesn't know him from Adam, doesn't know anything about him, just sees him, long hair, olive jacket, American flag patch, wants him out of town. So he gets him up the road, drops him off. Stallone starts to walk the other way, looks around a little bit, looks back, starts walking back towards the town. 
That is when let's Danny decides. To... Hang on, let's talk about that for a second. Because yeah. he starts to consider what his options here are. And I, I, I'm saying let's stop and let's examine this because I really want to point out when something is something subtle is done right in film. Because one of the big complaints that I've had on the, since we started doing this show is movies today many times don't take the time to let the actors act. Mm-hmm. And everything is dialogue-driven. Or everything is sharp cuts and you know, lots of action and explosions or, you know, um, excuse me, um, jump scares, you know, whatever. There's not a lot of time to let people act with their eyes. So here you have Stallone at literally a crossroads. He's at the edge of this bridge, and there's a road that, you know, that, that leads into the next town, and then there's this bridge back into town that he just got kicked out of. And he's standing there. And there is no internal, there's internal dialogue, but none that the audience can hear. It's what's in Stallone's head, Rambo's head. And his eyes change. Very, there's a very subtle change there where he's kind of mulling through his options. And as if to say, this isn't right. I've done nothing wrong. He had no reason to treat me this way. And not only that, but I'm getting sick and tired of people treating me this way. Fuck you. I'm going back. All I wanted was a sandwich. And yeah. he starts to walk back into town. You know, all you had to do was just give the man the big piece of chicken. <laughs> all you had to do just, just give him just give him a chick just give him a chicken and a biscuit and he's good. But yep. no, you gotta drive him thirty minutes up the road oh. and, and, sure, and all he wanted said, was a Pepsi. All he wanted yeah. was a Pepsi, and nobody would give it to him. Um, um, but what ends up happening is Dennehy puts him under arrest, never tells him what's for, just says, you're under, you're under arrest. Orders him to put his hands on, hands on the car, drags him back to the station, and Sloan is just quietly not cooperating with anything. Um won't let him fingerprint him, won't, won't press his, uh, his... He's being civilly uh, disobedient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Civilly disobedient. Thank you. That's exactly what it was. He's being civilly dis- disobedient when all of a sudden these cops just start beating the ever-loving piss out of him at every turn. And the guy just... Everything he sees as he's being detained is reminding him of being back in that Vietnam prison camp. Every single thing. He sees bars on the windows. All of a sudden, he's back at the bottom of that tiger cage, and they're pouring shit on him. Um, when, they're, when they're hosing him down to clean, to clean him off, uh, when they're trying to shave him uh, to, to clean him up to appear in court, uh, he's imagining that he's being, you know, tied up, limbs out, and being threatened with a blade. He's just little by little by little eating towards snapping completely until finally he does. And after they've beaten him and kicked him and choked him one too many times, he finally quits playing nice. He quits playing defense, and he absolutely goes straight ape shit, machine of death on this entire police department. And 
it culminates in what I've come to realize is one of my favorite vehicle chases of all time. Um, as, as he runs out into the streets like a madman, somebody comes charging down on on a uh, dirt bike. Stallone just clotheslines from clothesline from hell to the guy, knocks him off the bike, picks it up, charges off down the road like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. And out comes Dennehy in his in his squad car, charging after him. And there's a moment. <laughs> it's it's arguably one of my very favorite, favorite moments in the movie. They actually get to do the basically the jump over the train track scene from The Fast and the Furious twenty years early, and it is awesome. It, it's so good that you even get a little bit of a you know uh, from underneath airborne jump of the car. So good that at that point, I just wanted to pause it for a second, just kind of mouth trumpet a little bit of Dixie and just say to myself, well, John Rambo was sure off was sure off to the races. He was riding that bike <laughs> faster and looser than Cousin Maybell on, Maybell on a quart of Goat Fuck County Jail Toilet Huge. Um, I don't think Curse the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, but how much better would it have been if it had? Like if the Dukes of Hazard had been on uh, AMC or FX where they could have gotten away with a little bit? All right, let me stop you there, Sean, and ask you this. Now, we were talking before the show started tonight, and a little bit about me here. Uh, I, My father, for some odd reason, I was born in 1976, so I'm about four, maybe five, when, um, no, wait, no, I'm five, six. Uh, I all of a sudden can't do math. I'm, um, this, this came out in October 1982. I'm six when this comes out, which means I'm probably between six and seven, closer to seven, when I see it for the first time, because I'm pretty sure uh, I my father had it on a um, on VHS. When did 82 uh, did this come out? When did this hit theaters? October twenty second, nineteen eighty two. October. Yeah, I was not born yet. I was still just under two months from coming into this world. Okay. Well, I, like I said, I'm six when this premieres. I'm guessing it's on HBO uh, sometime later because we because I we had a video cassette of this, not a store bought one. This had to have been taped off of television somehow. Uh, and I'm guessing it was HBO because it wasn't the edited version. In any case, uh, I was allowed to watch rated R movies pretty much since the age of, like, five. And I don't know why my father thought this was a good idea, but he did, and I got to watch a lot of boobies. In any case, um, I also watched this movie at a really, really young age. And I remember, like, I didn't get it back then, because obviously I didn't have a lot of context. I was seven. But... I remember really, really liking the um, the action in the movie. Something I want to talk about a little bit later. Yeah. But I didn't really get to get to know Rambo. Um, I mean, I, like I said, I knew of the movie. I had seen it. I didn't really get it, but I liked watching him um, beat people up and chewed up the place at the end of the movie. However, uh, 1985. Um, I'm now nine years old. Um, if my math is correct. 
May twenty second, nineteen eighty five, is when First Blood Part two, is when Rambo First Blood Part Two comes out, and that I saw in the movie theaters with with my father, my father's friend, and his son, who were both um, really into war and army movies and stuff. And I remember as a nine year old, I thought First Blood Part two, Rambo First Blood Part Two was the greatest thing I've seen since Star Wars. Oh my God, I loved this movie. And over the years, as I've watched the sequels that have come out since then, and as I've gone back and watched these movies over and over, um, done a bit of uh, undergraduate work on um, on Vietnam and you know the, Viet- the effects of the effects of Vietnam, the effects of uh, Vietnam as far as the culture is concerned, you know, like movies that it produced and things like that. Um, you know, this is—it's been a big part of who I am and how I grew up. So, Rambo will always have a special place in my heart as a, as a franchise. What we were talking about, though, before we went on live tonight, was how this is the first time you've ever actually uh, watched First Blood. You've, you you have you had no relationship to this franchise until I threw it out there as a, um, as one to talk about on this show. So can we just talk about that for a little bit? You know, I've kind of given you a little bit of history as to how I came to it. What um, it, It's been out there all this time. It's been meaningful, at least in the, in the film community, to one degree or another. What, um, why, what, why do you think you stayed away from it until now, and what was your first impression when you, um, when you first watched First Blood? You know, it honestly wasn't really what I would call a conscious thing. And to give you some idea, I'm kind of in the same boat with another movie and another franchise that I'm sure we're going to get to at some point. And that is the fact that around the age you were when you first saw Rambo, that was about how old I think I was when I first saw RoboCop. Um, which <laughs> my parents didn't know any better at the time that it was rated R what was contained in it. <laughs> So they were not too happy when I watched it, <laughs> um, despite the fact that I, despite the fact that I conned them into renting it for me. Um, but no, uh, in a way, when it came to movies and a lot of entertainment growing up, uh, I was really kind of a product of my conditioning, and that was my dad in particular really prizes realism in movies um, and has a real disdain for what he views as anything that's especially over the top. And part of that comes from the fact that he is he had a very, very respectable 20-plus uh, year career in law enforcement. Uh, was an undercover narcotics officer in Independence, Independence, Missouri, that is, um, Worked for the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, um, their homicide division. Uh, he was a DARE officer, DARE trainer. He was a police chief. Um, even when he mostly got out and became an instructor at um, the University of Missouri's Law Enforcement Training Institute, uh, he still kept up as a part-time officer. So he would kind of seen enough, enough violence and enough grit and enough real-life death that he had a very harsh view of the way Hollywood glamorized and amplified it. So he he's never liked movies like movies like Rambo that are real heavy on 
um, explosions and ridiculous gunplay and everything. So it, it was just kind of an impression that that I got growing up, and it, it took a while for it to kind of, for it to kind of wear off. And in the meantime, it wasn't necessarily that I avoided it consciously. It's just that it was a franchise I never really got around to watching. Because in the interim, I mean, like I said, I love the first RoboCop. Uh, I actually actually think it's a really well-written, well-produced, very entertaining action movie. Uh, I I love the first two Terminator movies. So... It was just, I guess I should say I never really had the excuse to watch it. I never saw it when I was thumbing through Netflix or any or anything. I, I was never walking through a brick-and-mortar store and had kind of that, ooh, Navy Seals moment where I saw Rambo and I just kind of went, that, that is what I must watch tonight. So, you know, when we were kind of looking for sort of a stopgap for this month to sort of fill in and we came across Rambo, I thought, well, great excuse to finally sit down and watch and watch these and see what all the fuss is about. And to be honest, when I sat down and watched the first movie, I I was really blown away by by how subtle it was, even throughout all the fast-paced action, and how a lot of it was juxtaposing shots of. Stallone's silently seething uh, quest for survival as he's running around out in the woods evading his would-be captors and the police just rattling their sabers and pounding their and pounding their chests and we got to get that dirty filthy green beret some bitch and just really thinking they're thinking they're big shit when really all they are is just cannon fodder stereotypes. Uh, Richard Krona, who plays uh, Colonel Troutman, is absolutely amazing in this movie. Um, it's it's funny, and sometimes I, I can't get out of my own way, and I love Richard Krona, and I love the lines that he... I love his dialogue in this movie. I love his interactions with Brian Dennehy's uh, Teasel, uh, Sheriff Teasel. But on the other hand, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, you know... Had he had he shown some deference, had he had he used some degree of tact and um, diplomacy, he might have gotten Teasel to see it his way and, and try a different approach than head on in trying to take John Rambo down. Instead, he essentially went in there. Look, y'all about to get killed. This motherfucker ain't here to play. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, Listen, all you with your deputy training and sheriff whatnot, sit down because you're gonna die if you go after him. Well, Jesus Christ, they're not women. I mean, of course they're gonna be like, "Hey, you come around here. Where do you get that stuff?" You know, muscling in on our territory. Of course, like Brian Dennehy's character is not gonna take umbrage to the fact that basically he said this one lone nutcase is uh, gonna take down his entire police force. And then he does. Yeah, but, still, but you know what? You gotta love Richard Crenna because he's a lot like well, Lance Hendrickson and David Carradine both come to mind as guys that they're so good with subtlety. They're so good at carrying a scene without ever really having to raise their voices. 
And they're just such quietly imposing presences. I was going to say, he is Uh, Alec Alec Guinness. He is the Obi-Wan Kenobi of this film. You know, he's there to pretty much give you, you know, expository expository dialogue, and he doesn't really do anything else. You know, he's, he's just... He's just there, you know. It's like they, they draw, I love his whole entrance. They're sitting around looking at maps, trying to figure out where the hell this guy is. And at this point, the state police and the national guard are there, and you know, it's a multi-agency uh, manhunt for this one lone nutcase. And in drops Rich. <laughs> Hi, I'm here to save you from him. Here's why. He's a killing machine. You know, you can almost hear. <laughs> it's like. You almost wait. You're almost waiting for the string in the back of his butt to finish going all the way in back inside of him again. Yeah, I know, but that's the amazing thing. Is there's just there's some of those actors where you just you can never quite explain why they're so appealing to watch. It's not like it's not like the, it's not like they're walking, talking, you know, canned hams like they're Christopher Walken. Right. Who just who just absolutely devour every scrap of scenery they're acting around. No, and I am by no means saying Richard Crenna's performance was anything less than brilliant. As well, you know, I, that's that's the thing. Nobody gives a bad performance in this movie. Nobody. No. Um, no. It, it's a it's a great. You know, and and here's the thing. One of the reasons why I wanted to tackle the first Blood series was, uh, First Blood is really a, a seminal picture. When you consider the modern action movie, what are they usually using as a template? What, what, is, what are some of the most parodied, copied, outright stolen uh, memes for action movies? They come from First Blood. This thing turned. This thing is what spawned the modern action movie, and yet it doesn't ever get the credit that it's due. And I, and I think that's what sort of galls me about the whole thing. It, on the one hand, it's, it's such a heavy picture. When you think about the plight of the Vietnam soldier, that's serious business. And I'll tell you, we're, we're going to um, discuss this a little bit further, and then I want to play Rambo's final speech and discuss that. But I'll go ahead and give it away right now. When I watched him deliver his final speech about what it was like for him to come back and where he is mentally, I couldn't help but burst out crying. I mean, I'm a mess, okay? I just tears streaming down. I can't, I, I, I'm having a hard time catching my breath. I mean, and, and that's the thing. All everyone thinks about when, when you consider the Rambo movies is sort of the, uh, you know, Stallone screaming like a retard and shooting the gun into the air, which is what he does in the second movie. Um, yeah. But that's what everyone pictures. Ram- Rambo is, what is the, the parody with Charlie Sheen? Oh, Hot Shots. Hot Shots. Yeah, everyone thinks of the stuff that Hot Shots made fun of. And they never seem to remember that this was an editorial on the on the shabby treatment of Vietnam vet soldiers. And it's fucking serious. That's not something to be taken lightly. This man's complaints about how he was treated and basically how to this day, they're not this bad, but you know, the soldiers coming back from the Middle East have much the same stuff going on that, you know, that we'll talk about in just a minute. And it needs to be acknowledged. That's part of this. The other part of it is, as I said, this is the basis from which most action movies now uh, came from. This set set the ball in motion, and that needs to be acknowledged as well. No, it it really did. And 
I yeah, I guess I would say that. I guess I would say for the '80s era action movie, it really did. Um, I started to kind of hesitate that one a little bit and say, eh, the seminal action movie, well, I don't know about that. And I thought, no, well, then again, as far as the summer action blockbuster goes, yeah, because this is really a, a, breed, of part, a breed of part of what are my favorite action movies, and that's the stuff from, for the most part, the 1970s. The, the late 50s when, you, when you think about the Superman movies, and I don't mean like Superman, the DC comic book hero, but the lone, you know, when Jason Statham, those kinds of movies. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, the, the, the action star, Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger. They all stole yeah. from First Blood. It's the superhero versus, you know, the one man with a gun, you know, and, and his, his superhuman fighting abilities and all this other stuff versus an array of obstacles, and everyone's out to get them, and the chase is on over and over and over again. Well, it all starts with this movie, but this movie was doing those things in the name of uh, trying to tell you about the plight of the Vietnam, of the returning Vietnam vet, whereas a lot of the movies that followed this gave you all of the sizzle and none of the steak. They gave you all of the action and none of the subtext, which is really irritating to me. Well, including the three sequels. No, I would say the two sequels, because I think the next one, it's still there. But we'll talk about that in, in just a few minutes. But I want to let you make your uh, make your point and um, kind of finish, flesh out whatever thoughts you had, and then I want to play the clip. Oh, I mean, and I don't know. I, I guess if I were to kind of draw a line, I guess I could say that actually... First Blood is kind of the last of the era of the action movies that I really get the most into. Because the ones that I really like are the ones with that sense of, as I've said so many times before, of authenticity about them. That they've kind of gone out of their way to make them feel a little bit more real, a little bit more grounded. That's why arguably my all-time favorite action star is Charles Bronson. And my three favorite Bronson movies are The Mechanic. And, well, it's kind of The Mechanic and uh, The First Death Wish, kind of dueling it out for number one and two. And a very close third is Hard Times. And along the other lines of that, you've also got the great Steve McQueen movies, like Bullet, like the great, like the Great Escape. Um, oh God, trying to think of it. Uh, the rodeo movie he did, uh, Junior Bonner. That's it, Junior Bonner. Um, movies like that. Also, you know, they're, they're obviously more over the top, but I also dig Bruce Lee movies for the same for the same reason, because Bruce had that authenticity of that kind of, of that kind of presence. Um the the Sean Connery Bond movies. I could go I could go on and on and get into guys like Lee Marvin and Fred Williamson and stuff like that. Right. But, Here, here's the thing that uh, I would consider. A lot of these action movies weren't really about anything. They may have had solid plots and, and certainly solid storytelling. 
but they really didn't tell you anything about the human condition. Um, this movie does, and I think that's yeah, why. Are, are you saying that in reference to some of the movies that I that I'm talking no. about? Because I will no, not some movies that you're. No, no, I'm talking about. I'm talking about the modern action movies. Oh, okay. I'm thinking, okay. No, no, I wasn't referring to the ones that you. No, the ones that you said are obviously about something. But when you think about like the modern action movie, um, the kind of stuff that we saw like even this past summer, maybe with the exception of Iron Man three, which was definitely about something, um, you know, you think about like like the Transformers movies, for example. This is some of the most highest grossing, mo- you know, most financially successful action movies in modern um, modern Hollywood. If you can tell me what they're about besides giant giant jive talking robots, I will give you one shiny nickel. I mean, they're about nothing. Well, you know, I, I, I'll actually go to. I'll go to a step worse than that. Um, it seems like anymore when Hollywood tries to go out of its way to make a point about how it feels about the military, about foreign policy, about anything even remotely political, it is about as subtle as a Daniel Bryan knee to the skull. This, there is no really letting anything simmer or just letting anything play out. Hollywood pretty much figures its core audience is collectively functionally retarded and cannot possibly <laughs> grasp what anybody is trying to say without it being explicitly spelled out and then phonetically pronounced. The two movies that come most to mind are Zack Snyder's adaptation of Watchmen, which takes all the ambiguity out of the graphic novel and just explicitly just kind of slams it right home as being as being Reagan was bad and there's even kind of a toss in there of of it seems like vainly almost trying to adapt it from being Reagan's bad to kind of trying to slip in there. George W. Bush sucks too. But it doesn't do that nearly as much, not even remotely close to as uh, to as blatantly and as obnoxiously or as preachly preachly is that a word um, as uh, the Wachowski brothers' adaptation of V for Vendetta. Um, if, if you've ever seen that, the entire thing is, and yes, I know it's an adaptation of a graphic novel, is is painted as, as being so blatantly, the whole reason they wanted to make it was because they wanted to make one big statement against uh, the eight years of the Bush administration. Maybe only four well, years at that point. I forget when exactly it came out. Well, you said that Hollywood thinks that its audience is functionally retarded. I think to a degree they're on to something. When you consider Man of Steel was supposed to be a a look at what happens when um, an alien god is forced to live among men and how that might affect his psyche and those around him, and we're happening to and we're happening to call this Superman because that's what you know that's what's identifiable to people. But ultimately that was what the story was, and it really was about something. And everyone went fuck this movie. It was a collective, oh, we just want him to save Lois Lane as she falls out a window. Is that so hard? Yes, they are functionally retarded, Sean. 
Well, yeah, yeah, despite the fact that a few of the most intriguing Superman stories deal with exactly that theme. But, you know, you didn't feel quite that... When you're watching Rambo, you didn't feel... Not Rambo, rather, but when you're watching First Blood, you don't feel quite like you're being patronized or preached to no. quite as much as as, a, as the movies I just mentioned. Um, but, and again, yes, I know they're adaptations of graphic novels, so they really are being somewhat true to Alan Moore's story, but it's also in the way it's presented as well. Right. I, um, I don't know if it was with you or Jeff Harris where I was talking about this, but there's a uh, a parody movie called uh, Don't Be a Menace While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. Yeah, right, and, right, I've heard of it. And um, they parody the idea that uh, that a lot of the the hood movies of the of the late '90s, early 2000s were, as you were saying, they just yeah, that's where I was going with this. They just beat you over the head with whatever the message of the movie is supposed to be. Subtlety, thy name is not. And when, and and just to drive that point home, every time they, the parody movie said a message, they would actually have Keenan Ivory Wayans come into uh, come in come on screen and yell message. Yeah, at, which well, to this day is something was, I'll still do. Yeah, at one point he was doing it as an infant. Yeah, see, like yeah, he comes in like as a mailman. At one point he's a, he's an infant in the crib. He just does it constantly. So like I'll do that now. I'll be in the movie theaters, and when I see something that's so you know so blatant and god awful, I'll just yell out "Message!" <laughs> and how many movies has this gotten you kicked out of? <laughs> um, I want to go ahead and play the clip. It's a, it's a fairly lengthy clip. It's about three minutes. Um, before I do, chuckling mark. Say what? I said that was a very telling ch- subject dodging chuckle there. <laughs> Um, I've, you know, I've gotten in trouble for heckling once or twice. Um, but let, let, <laughs> let me, uh... Let, hey, hang on, hang on. Let me that clip for a moment. When have you gotten in trouble for heckling a movie? I want specifics here. Oh, I can't get into specifics. The fuck you can't. <laughs> it's, I know I have gotten into trouble. I, I don't really remember. I know that I once, uh, thought... I once made a girl fear for her life if she didn't let me into Spider-Man, even though I bought tickets for the wrong day. <laughs> Are you serious, dude? You're... I bought tickets for the Sunday show. Now think. Now just r- real quick, I we had gotten tickets for the premiere of the of the Sony um, reboot of Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, which was like a billion dollar picture. Okay, everybody and their mother came out opening night to go see Spider-Man. I bought the tickets online for like 20 of my friends. And mm-hmm. I and because I screwed up the date, I bought them all for Sunday. Oh wow. And there was and there was a real defining uh, of character on this night because the people who decided that they weren't going to um and now every movie every movie is at this point sold out. There's no way, you know, there's no way we can get, like, a switch in tickets or anything like that, because I tried. So half of them went home and said, well, I guess we'll see it on Sunday then, and they all got mad at me. Um, the other half was like, well, I'm not giving up, and I don't care that these are for the wrong day. So you had so you had the morally self-righteous and the who-gives-a-shit crowd. And I was, of course, the leader of the who-gives-a-shits. So about ten of us <laughs> stayed online 
And I remember they were checking tickets online. They made, made sure you didn't buy tickets for something else. And they, they checked every, they, they looked at me. All my friends are kind of in back of me like a small army. And I gave her my ticket, and I gave her this face. I didn't say a word. I didn't ball my fist or anything. I just looked at her like, if you tell me that you noticed that this is the wrong date, I will eat your face. <laughs> I've never done anything that bad. However, I did once make an entire audience full of people laugh extra hard at a particular moment in the trailer for Glitter. Okay. Um, well, what happened, um, and uh, the two people out there who would know about this, I believe are my good friend Anne and um, my ex fiance who never listens to the show anyway. So, you know, F her. Um, but we had all gone to see uh, Rush Hour 2. And the theater we were at uh, must have been a rookie projectionist because the scaling was all off. Everything was stretched horizontally. And so during one particular shot <laughs> um, in which Mariah Carey looked more like Kathy and Jimmy, uh, I all of a sudden just screamed out in the middle of this theater, that's a huge bitch! To to laughter and uproarious applause. So, I, I, I'm not I'm the sure threatened... So, yeah, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the threatened theater worker guy. I'm the inappropriate comments during the trailer guy. Yeah, I'm sure there are other stories of that. that I, just nothing's coming to mind right, right at this time. All right, so Rambo's out in the woods. First, he's pursued by the by just the deputies, and he uses guerrilla warfare to, to um, maim them. Uh, and he threatens Brian Dennehy and says, "Don't come after me, or you're going to get a war you'll you'll never recover from." Um, they retreat. They meet up with the state with the state police and the uh, the national guard. This is when Troutman shows up and says, "This is a bad idea. Back off. Wait for him. He'll probably get picked up washing cars in Seattle." And Brian Denny, he says, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? And give me back my pants. Um, yeah, so, they, so the National Guard track Rambo into a mine. They, uh, this group of weekend warriors uh, fires a missile at the mine. Um, and this is where you get to see something rarely seen in action movies, where our superhero actually uses his wit and not his muscle to get himself out of a jam. So he's in this tunnel, and uh, he makes a crude torch, and he uses the wind to kind of figure out where um, the air is coming from, and then he starts heading towards it in order to get out of the tunnel, which is only a few feet away from where he went into. He hijacks a car, um, he rides it back into town, he closes off the road, then blows up a gas station. He then proceeds to take a Gatling gun and continue to blow up various stores. Uh, he makes his way into the police station where him and Brian Dennehy have a final face-off, and he shoots Brian Dennehy, Brian Dennehy through the skylight. And as he's blowing up the entire police station and nearly kills Dennehy, uh, Colonel Troutman corners him, and this is what happens. It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! It wasn't my war! You asked me, I didn't ask you! And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win! Then I come back to the world, 
And I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. It was a bad time for everyone, Rambo. It's all in the past now. For you! For me, civilian life is nothing. In the field, we had a code of honor. You watch my back, I watch yours. Back here, there's nothing. You're the last of an elite group. Don't end it like this. Back there, I can fly a gunship. I can drive a tank. I was in charge of million-dollar equipment. Back here, I can't even hold a job. Fucking guards! Ah! I can't... Oh, God. Where's everybody? God, I had a friend was the Air Force. I had all these guys, man. Back there, I had all these fucking guys. Who were my friends? Because back here, there's nothing. Remember the Air Force? What is black headband? I took one of those magic markers and I said it found. He mailed us to Las Vegas because we're always talking about Vegas. And this fucking car, this is a red 58 Chevy convertible, he's talking about this car. He said we're going to cruise till the tires fall off. When this bar and said, guys, and this kid comes up, this kid going to see shine box. And they said, uh, shine, please, shine. I said, no, and he kept asking, yeah. And Joey said, yeah. And I went to get a couple of beers, and the, the box is wired, and he opened up the box, fucking blew his body all over the place. He's laying there, and he's fucking screaming, there's pieces of them all over me. Just like and I'm trying to pull him off, you know. And it's my friend, it's all over me. He's got blood and everything, and I'm trying to hold him together. I put him together, his fucking his head keep coming out. And nobody would help. No one helped me say, please, I want to go home. I want to go home. We can call my leg. I want to go home, Johnny. I want to drop my Chevy. I don't know what. I can't find your fucking leg. I can't find your leg. I can't even get it in the head. I can't even seven years. Every day. Sometimes I wake up and roll around. I don't talk to anybody. Sometimes a day. Don't you think we owe it to every soldier that comes back from combat not to treat them like shit when that's how they feel? When they experience horrible, mind-bending, traumatic events, and it, it takes all the self-control in the world just to get through the day, don't you think we owe it to people to not spit at them and... and treat them terribly, at the very least, respect the fact that they are fellow Americans. To this day, I can't hear that without welling up with tears. You know, I, I mean, some people may react quite viscerally to that speech um, and see it a different way, but I, I, for one, can't. It's the most real, it's, it's the most heartbreaking monologue I've seen in almost any movie I've ever watched. And there aren't too many that to this day I can I can listen to, and I react the same way every single time. And it's probably one of Stallone's 
you know, best deliveries of uh, of dialogue ever. But uh, what was your reaction when you first heard that? Uh, pretty much exactly what yours was. And the simple fact that everybody needs to appreciate is that we live in a country where it is an entirely volunteer armed forces. Uh, you can say what you will about the recruiting tra- tactics, about how recruiters don't always give the whole truth to recruits when they're when they're giving them the sales pitch. You can say what you will about that, but the simple fact is is it comes down to choice, and in the end, currently, every single member of our armed forces signed up voluntarily. There is no draft. Has not been for decades. Um, they are serving voluntarily, always in, always in the waiting in case their country needs them so that nobody ever again has to be drafted into a con into a conflict like they were in Vietnam, like they were in Korea, like they were in all the wars prior. Um, you have to keep in mind that many other countries do still have compulsory military service. They don't have the choices that Americans do to serve or not. And whether or not you agree with the conflicts in which they in which they fight they've chosen to be the ones to go fight in those wars, to go put their lives on the line when their country asks, when their country asks it of them so that nobody else has to do it unwillingly. And I happen to hold a great deal of esteem for the military because, for one thing, uh, it runs in my family. Uh, number of family members that preceded my dad's generation fought in World War II, including my my late grandpa Comer. Um, and as I mentioned before, my dad's cousin Steve fought in Vietnam, uh, lost part of his thumb there. Uh, collectively, you know, Steve never talks about Vietnam, never has for as long for as long as I've grown up around him. Uh, the story with Grandpa Homer was always, there was a lot that he saw in World War II that he never liked to discuss. A lot of stuff that haunted him and gave him nightmares his entire life. Uh, the difference being, when Grandpa came back from World War II, the soldiers from that conflict, and I understand they were different conflicts, don't get me wrong, I get that. Um, they were obviously treated as conquering heroes who did their duty to keep the free world free. Uh, Steve's generation was treated arguably the most abhorrently, the most appallingly badly of any set of veterans in American history. Um, The generation today that chooses to protest in the manner that they do, they have no idea really how fortunate 
these veterans these veterans are in comparison to the ones that came before. No idea whatsoever. As I mentioned before, at this point, nobody nobody was lining up to celebrate these people. Um, all the all, all the heartstring tugging uh, YouTube clips you see of soldiers coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq with special surprises for their families and every and everything. Uh, none of it was so glamorized back then. They came home and were made the enemy. And as we'll talk about in a little bit in First Blood Part 2, it's really at the end of that movie that it returns to that theme after it's really kind of lost in the action of the rest of the movie. Yeah, I do want to... I want to move to closing the book on First Blood and moving into Rambo. But... The whole movie really does lead up to that final speech. Um, it gives you uh, because I mean at that point we were, we were talking about this actually before the mo- before the show started that uh, Stallone doesn't have a tremendous amount of dialogue. Um, it's a lot. He's acting a lot with his eyes. He's you know he he's doing a lot of physical stuff, um, which I know uh, critics of the time thought the movie was wholly unrealistic because you know he like throws himself off a cliff into trees and stuff and doesn't die. Um, I, I have less a problem with that sort of thing <laughs> than I do with, uh, you know, say, jive-talking robots, but I digress. Um, but uh, it really, you know, it, it's a lot of action, and they don't really deal with a lot of the themes. And, and, then it, and then it takes you right back home again with that final monologue. And it, that's really what the movie is all about. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a warning. It's a, it's a warning to... Americans that you can you cannot continue to treat these people this way uh lest you you know you create a situation where they, where they turn it back on you uh which is not what we want we want to take care of our soldiers we don't want to turn them into monsters uh I really do think first blood's brilliant um you know i I was on the casual heroes podcast a couple of weeks ago and we were talking we did a list of um the twenty five greatest action movies and I think uh first blood came in at like seventeen or something and for the next twenty minutes, Jed and I just lambasted this list I'm like how could it not be number one you know if it's not number one, it needed to be within the top five at the very least certainly not like fifteen or seventeen or whatever the hell it was it's an important movie, and I don't think it gets the respect that it deserves. Um, but it ends with him just turning himself in. It kind of, it, like, like the after he he defeats Dennehy, um, and he's about to kill him, he delivers that whole speech, and then the movie just kind of ends. And you're left to wonder what what becomes of John Rambo? Does he go to a does he go to a state psychiatric hospital? Is he does he go to prison? You know, is he uh, is he executed? What becomes of this of this man who's telling us this? Um, this story, and uh, First Blood um, Part Two. Here, or Mar- or Mar- may I interrupt you for one second? Because I just realized sure. something, something truly depressing in comparison. Um, you know, growing up when I did, I really consider kind of the definitive war of my generation, so to speak, to be the Gulf War. Because that was the one that was that was going on was the big focus. Um, 
during my elementary school years, and that was uh, kind of one of the defining points of the George H.W. Bush administration. Um, by comparison, um, our two defining movies about that war that we've gotten so far, Three Kings and Jarhead. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else feel profoundly ripped off at this point? <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty terrible. Um, so, uh, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, uh, which was released May twenty second, nineteen eighty five, um, and, and won a bunch of Razzie awards. People were not particularly uh, enthusiastic about this movie, though I loved it, especially as a kid. Um, in any case, it deals with the subject of POWs, and at the end of the Vietnam War. Um, there were there were still um i guess hundreds of POWs still left in Vietnam admittedly this is not a subject i know a tremendous amount about but i do know that there were POWs left in Vietnam that uh were never claimed and are presumed dead at this point uh they may have been even presumed dead in 1982 but there's a whole slew of action movies that dealt with this um a lot of like the missing in action movies you know the old Chuck Norris movies yeah, dealt with yeah. the, dealt with the concept of sending American soldiers back into Vietnam to reclaim the uh, prisoners of war, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the plot of this movie. Is essentially um, he's in a prison work camp breaking rocks, and uh, Troutman comes to get him and says, "Okay, well here's the deal. We're gonna th- there's possible clemency uh, if you go on a mission for us where." The idea is you have to go back into Vietnam, go into a prisoner of war camp, see if there's any uh, Americans. If there are, take pictures, and then we'll pick you up. And, you know, of course, he's, uh, you know, what, what do you mean? Um, just, just take pictures. Why aren't we going to get these people? And they're like, well, that's not the mission. The mission is you need to prove that they exist, and if they do, then, we'll, then an, ex- an extraction team will go get them. All we need you to do is sneak into this camp and take pictures. So he agrees um, with the idea that you know, he's doing the honorable thing for his fellow soldiers, and um, it'll get him out of prison. So, they, they, as it turns out, the uh, Charles Napier, who plays um, Marshall Murdoch, is a Washington bureaucrat in charge of this thing, who is basically trying to placate members of Congress, um, he's not really interested in finding POWs. All he wants is to produce proof that there aren't any so that we can move on with life. And there's, there's actually, a later on in the movie, there's actually a great argument between him and Troutman uh, over it. And Troutman kind of, he, he resumes the same role where he's giving expository dialogue. You know, he talks about, we were supposed to pay war reparations to the Viet Cong. We didn't. They kept the POWs, um, which is what caused all of this to happen. And Charles Napier's character, Marshall Murdoch, basically goes into this whole thing about how we really don't want to know if there are POWs there because that's going to start up a chain of events that nobody wants to see happen. You know, he says things like, what do you want to do, restart the war? You know, I'm not here for that. I'm here to clean up the mess. So on the one hand, he's a villain. You know, he's the guy who abandons Rambo in Vietnam, for example. 
he's the guy who, no matter what they find, is going to just uh, leave everything there and pretend it didn't happen. I think Troutman even says, like, if he had come back with the pictures like he was supposed to, you would have just lost the pictures. The whole This whole thing was a setup from the word go. And he was like, I am doing my job. You know, it's the old, you know, the, it's the, old, the, the villain feel, the, the best villains in any of these movies are the ones who absolutely, we talked about this on Mission Impossible, who absolutely feel uh, that they are doing God's work. They are doing the right thing. And uh, in their mind, they're justified. So he doesn't feel like he's a villain at all. Um, as a matter of fact, he feels like he's doing his bit for God and country. And yeah, that's it's, pretty and really, I I kind of like these kinds of villains. Like, and you see them a lot. The the ones who uh, they're like the Jack Nicholsons in uh, in A Few Good Men. They are yeah. they are legitimately convinced that they are the apex patriots. Uh, that that famous Jack Nicholson line: "You need people like me." Um, in this guy's opinion. He's doing what's right. He's doing what nobody else really has the conviction to do. And they're always the most interesting because, in their mind, if they were watching this movie, you know, they'd be the one on the poster as the hero. It, it probably wouldn't be called Rambo. It would be called Murdoch. Which, <laughs> which, fuck me, why has nobody made a movie called Murdoch? we got Mitchell, but not Murdoch? I also have Jack Reacher, but that's an entirely different podcast. Yeah, but that's a stupid thing. <laughs> well, the point being is they made movies with stupid names. Why not a movie with a cool name, like Murdoch? Well, well, we, well like I said, we got Joe Don Baker and Mitchell. What's Joe Don <laughs> doing these days? So the point the point of this is is that that's the plot line to this. Um some more details just to let you know who some of these other characters are. He's supposed to meet up with an agent um, who's going to—he's sort of a fixer who's going to lead him through um, and get him to get, get him to the camp. And that is uh, a character played by Julian Nixon, Cobau. So she and Rambo have the shortest uh, unrequited love rela- uh, love relationship ever in the history of cinema. <laughs> they, she, they kiss. The, he, she, she decides she's going to go back with him to America. He decides he's going to take her back. Then she's promptly killed. Dun, 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 dun. Um, now, I was prepared to say, well, here, let me finish laying out the plot line, and then, and then I'll get into this. So Rambo gets to the POW camp, finds one POW laid out across um, a, you know, a set of uh, bamboo sticks. Um, looks like he's being tortured, and the rest are in, are, are trapped in a, in a in a bamboo cage. And he frees the one guy, and they get, you know, and there's a chase, so they get out of the POW camp, they get to the extraction site, and Murdoch, having realized that Rambo not only did uh, did not follow orders, but has got an actual POW with him, which would be hard to lose, says, fuck him, leave him there, (laughs) we're done, pull out, abort. Um, And of course, you know, Troutman tries to overrule him, they pull a gun, uh, that's when Trapman goes back to the camp and says this was all a sham. Meanwhile, back in the city, uh, Rambo is taken back into the prison camp. He is tortured again. Uh, the Russians show up because they were the only bad guys we had besides maybe uh, the Muslims back in the 80s. Um, the Russians show up, who are, of course, allies with the communist Vietnam, and uh, they continue to torture him, and they want 
uh, him to radio. Uh, they want him to radio Murdoch, which he inevitably does after being tortured. But he does this because he's realizing he's about to be rescued. So this is an opportune time to make a threat. <laughs> he says, just one of the greatest lines of this movie. I mean, I can't. There's, there's nothing to it in terms of, I mean, no real meat to it in terms of, you know, deeper meaning or, um, you know, or anything else like that. But it's, but as far as really cool action dialogue. It's fucking great. Cause, and I remember watching it in the theater. When he gri- slowly, there's a close-up of his hand, and he tightly grips the microphone, and he brings it to his lips, and he says, Murdoch, I'm coming to get you. People in the theater were throwing underwear. I mean, it was cartwheels in the aisles, popcorn thrown into the air. People were fucking cheering. All you needed at that point was for him to knock out Apollo Creed, and we would have all been happy. Um, <laughs> it was so cool. Tell me where you are, Rambo, and we'll come and get you. No, Murdoch, I'm coming to get you. You know, and, and at that point, him and Kobo annihilate everybody, and they take off. Um, you know, it's really funny. The whole movie is three trips to the same camp. There's the initial, and then they leave with the guy. Then they're denied uh, extraction. They go back. Then they escape again, and this time um, he somehow gets a helicopter. He steals a helicopter from the Russians, I think it is, goes back to the camp, blows it the fuck up, rescues all the POWs, and then takes it all the way back to uh, to base camp in, I think, Cambodia. No, sorry, Thailand. So the whole movie is literally him going back and forth to this camp three times. Which, you know, I could kind of see how that kind of storytelling would get a little bit old. <laughs> so he's got the helicopter, he's got the POWs, he's got call, he's got gas, he's got Baltimore Brown. Um, he takes the helicopter back to the base camp, punches out, oh God, who did he punch out? Um, punched out Martin Cove, who plays Erickson. Um, then, you know, walks into, and, and it's kind of a, a, a reprise of the first movie, where he walks in with the machine gun and, and proceeds to blow away this military camp. And he points the gun at, uh, at Murdoch, you know, he chokes him and he throws him on the desk and he says, go back, you know there's more out there, go back and get him, or I'm going to find you. Um... At which point he drops the gun and promptly walks out of the thing. Troutman says, where are you going to go? And he, was, and he just says, you know, he's just, oh, how will you live, John? To which Rambo replies, day by day. So it, it, it really ends with his obligation to the military is ended. He's going to go, he's not going back to America. He's just going to walk, walk the lands of Thailand to see what adventure uh, is before him as a free man. And that's really the way it ends. It's a. It's kind of like Inglorious Bastards, where it's it's a fantasy tale. Um, it's a, it's it's cathartic. It's an opportunity for people who are have a vested interest in you know POWs in Vietnam to sort of live out this fantasy where a super soldier goes in and rescues them all, and they all have their retribution. There's nothing you, uh, inherently wrong with that. You did kind of miss the line though, where Rambo says that um, he wants his country to love its soldiers as much as its soldiers love it. 
that's yeah. the line that me always brings it right back to what we talked about just a little bit ago. Um, about the theme of America's lack of appreciation for its soul for its soldiers and how that's just kind of an ongoing thing that that Rambo really really keeps suffering throughout all these movies is just he's he's constantly bearing witness to the lack of appreciation. Yeah. Um and it just, it just well, and that's, that's what I wanted to get to really quick. I was prepared to come on this podcast and say, and, you know, while it's First Blood is the serious movie and while it's an action movie, there's still a lot to a lot to deal with. There's a lot of meat to this movie that I think, as I said before, deserves serious consideration. And Rambo is sort of the silly movie. Um, this is where things start to go off the rails, and this is where a lot of the parodies come from and everything else. Here's the deal. After watching it again and, and, and giving it uh, serious consideration, I actually don't think this movie is as silly as people think it is. To a degree, um, you know, it, it, again, it's the, super, it's the super soldier, it's the, uh, the Superman, one man versus the entire Vietnamese army and Russian army, and he somehow never, never manages to be shot. Um, you know, he can do all of these crazy things and nothing, and he never gets a scratch on him. Okay, whatever. You know, I've seen worse. But this still had something valid to say. We abandoned fellow Americans in Vietnam, and we did so as sort of a political maneuver. That's important. And, you know, maybe the the messenger is a bit silly, but it doesn't, to me, I don't think it invalidates the message. And people seem to forget that that was the message of this movie. Well, let, let's face it, it didn't really get seriously, craptastically awful until Rambo 3. No. <laughs> well, it, Rambo 3 and 4 completely lose the point. But we'll talk about that in two weeks. <laughs> um, no, I, this was the one where the message really started to get kind of weak. It's, it's far from the worst in the series, but it, it definitely doesn't hold a candle to its predecessor. This is one of the few franchises that we've run through so far wherein there is no point of increasing return. This is where, you know, we, we talk about naming the show Long Road to Ruin, and people kind of assume that every franchise we do, we're trying to say it always goes from good straight down to bad all to bad all the way. This is one of the few times where that's actually true. Uh, we've covered a couple so far where we've made arguments that the second or third movie in a series actually got a little bit better. Uh, we said that about about Superman. We said Superman 2 was arguably better than the first one. Um, I argued that Paranormal Activity 2 was better than the first one. This one and the next franchise we're doing... Well, the next one that Robert and I are doing, I should say, while you're going to be on vacation. Uh, these really just never got any better. No, um, this one, this one's a steep decline. No, I, and I will say this though: may it forever be to Hollywood's shame that no one 
ever wrote a buddy action movie that paired Sylvester Stallone with Carl Weathers. <laughs> you know, Carl Weathers is a very bitter man. I remember, like, during the press junket for Action Jackson, he was like, why can't I ever be the good guy? It's like, well, because America hates black people, that's why. Oh, come on, don't go there. <laughs> well, no, we love them now as long as they look like The Rock. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> long road to it, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, good luck, good night. <laughs> But seriously, uh, folks. Yeah, yeah this, um, this for my this for my Floridian co-host. <laughs> uh, look, I love I, I I love First Blood Part Two. Um, you know, it's again it was it was one of the quintessential action movies of the '80s. When people think of like the '80s action movie, this is the one that they typically think of. Uh, it had all the elements to it. Um, you know, it has the uh, the close-up shots of him getting ready, which were parodied in other movies or outright stolen. Um, you know, I always remember, like, the fake-out where you you see his arm flexing and, you know, there's a close-up of, like, the veins in his arms and the muscles and everything, and he's just sharpening a knife or he's, like, tying his shoe. Like, oh. Um, you know, it's just the sounds like he's someone's being punched in the face and all he's doing is sheathing his knife. Things like that. Well, well. Well, that's where the entire opening credit sequence from Dexter came from. <laughs> you betcha. Um, there are... It got a lot of negative reviews, but, it, it, again, I think it's. I think you have to go easy on this one. It at least had something to say, and it is the film for which a lot of other movies, you know, directly ripped it off. You know, it, it, it is responsible for the action genre... More more so, I think, than even First Blood, being what it is today. So I think it it has its it has its place in uh, in movie history. Yeah, it's it's a fun one. It is is the '80s action franchise. It, it really is, and it is everything that is quintessential about '80s action, both for better and for worse. It just also happens to be one of the few 80s franchises that at least starts out with something to say. Uh, the other one that comes right to mind when I think about that is I think about how RoboCop is really one big satire of 80s media sensationalism and consumerism. Uh, it's over the top, it's gritty, it's gory, it's violent. Parts of it are flat out are flat out horrific, and it's a wonder that I wasn't scarred for life seeing Murphy's graphic murder when I was about seven years old. However, still, uh, I, I think back in 2011, I watched it for the first time in something like five or six years, and I was surprised at really how thoughtful it it was. Um, it's that's another one that's very easy to appreciate. However, the two sequels that came after completely lost touch with everything that made the first movie so interesting. Well, this uh, definitely falls, and this is the last point I want to make on this, then we, then we close out. Um, Rambo First Blood Part Two, 
doesn't have this problem as much as 3 and 4 do, which is they fall into the same trap that we've talked about before, and that is more dinosaurs, where the people making these movies lose lose touch with what these movies were about and what they were trying to say, and they think, oh, well, we don't have to make a movie about anything. We just have to make a movie with more dinosaurs. It's the dinosaurs everyone's coming for. And in the case of First Blood, they want to see Rambo kill more people. No, killing more people isn't why we come to watch Rambo movies. We want to see, you know, what 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 are you going to editorialize about this time? What 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 is the angry soldier going to tell us? And maybe people don't realize that when they're watching it, but I guarantee you that 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 somewhere in the back of your mind, that's what's happening. It may, you, you know, maybe in the front of your mind, you're thinking, well, I I really do want to see what can, what whole army will will Rambo wipe wipe out with just his you know machine gun this time. But yeah, you know, again, it, it, senseless killing for the sense of for the, for, the, for the sense of action isn't really all that intriguing. It's it's pretty easy to forget, really, what a paltry body count he racks up in the first movie. Yeah, well, he doesn't kill anyone in the first movie. I mean, Galt falls no. out of the helicopter of his own accord. One guy goes out a window, but it's not really for certain whether or not he said it. he maims the rest of the the sheriff's deputies. And that's yeah. really it. I don't even think he killed Dennehy. Because at that point, uh, he's he's kind of done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say, he didn't even kill the uh, the young David Caruso that was in that movie, in that movie before he was a uh, pair of sunglasses that got followed around by the Who. So. All right. Um, any last thoughts on the first two Rambo movies? Not really. We pretty much said it all for the first two. The first one was a well-intentioned, thoughtful movie, and it really featured easily Sylvester Stallone's most nuanced, uh, dare I even say for him, subtle uh, post-Rocky performances. And it really drives home that when he puts forth effort He's actually a pretty good actor. It's just that I think more often than not, he's picked some really bad roles. I mean, incredibly bad ones. Um, you got to look at it, and, and even even looking at something like uh, Judge Dredd, you got to look at it and think, well, was the problem really that he was the wrong guy for the role or just the way the movie was presented. Um, because quite frankly, I think you take everybody who worked on uh, Dread back in 2012, and made that when it, before it came out in 2012, um, and instead you put Stallone in there and Carl Urban, I think you have at least as good a movie. I will I will go so far as to say it's better necessarily because I really liked Carl Urban in it, but I think Stallone could have at least matched it. It's just it's the daredevil trip. argument, isn't it? it? It's the it's the daredevil argument with Ben Affleck. If some if somebody who actually understands the comic book writes and directs that movie, does it matter that Ben Affleck's in it? It probably ends up being really good. Unfortunately, it was written and directed poorly, and Ben Affleck takes the blame for it. I think that's always been 
my problem with the first Judge Dredd movie was it was it was terribly written, it was terribly directed, and Stallone was doing the best job with the shit script he was given. Well, and and to look at the other ones though too. I mean, think about some of the other movies he's done. Nobody, nobody on God's green earth, if you genetically engineered the absolute perfect actor from the greatest Oscar winners of all time, they couldn't make Stop or My Mom Will Shoot entertaining. <laughs> no, the all-time oh. worst Stallone uh, movie is Oscar. Oh, God, that's got to be right up there. Um, I was going to throw out Over the Top, actually. Um, Dude, Over the Top is awesome. And I will fight anybody that says otherwise. It's maybe awesomely bad. It's fantastic. Right. Oh. But go ahead no, and make, make uh, your make your final point here. But but no, if you really look at it, if you really go back and watch, especially the better of the Rocky movies, and you go back and watch First Blood, that's the really tragic thing you quickly realize about Sylvester Stallone's career is. He's a pretty intelligent guy who absolutely, I don't know if you want to blame him or his him or his agent or what, but sometime shortly after making, after making First Blood, he just lost all sense for what made a really good role. I think there's a lot of pressure on you. As an actor, John Travolta had had a very similar problem. As you recall, John Travolta, he was in Saturday Night Fever, he was in Grease, and then he made a bunch of terrible movies. Um, he, was, he was also in Welcome Back, Cotter. Pretty cool character, he was a sex symbol. People really dug John, John Travolta. Then he started making terrible movies, and it culminated with three Talking Baby movies, um, which nearly killed his career. And when you look back on uh, some of the interviews he did after his career was resurrected by Quentin Tarantino in the in the guise of Pulp Fiction, one of the things he talks about is, yeah, I, I was choosing terrible movies. I would turn down movies that ended up being awesome to take movies that I thought were good against the advice of my agent that ended up being terrible. And I think, like I said, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, you look at someone like The Rock, the Rock looks like he's taking everything that's being offered to him, and it, it's turning out he, he's lucky that like the G.I. Joe movies actually make money, um, and the Fast and the Furious movies make money. Uh, Pain and Gain, I think, did okay. Uh, but if you look at like what The Rock does, The Rock takes every movie that they throw at him. I don't know if, there's a, if he's even thinking about it. You know, it's just like, look, I'm just going to take as many roles as I can because I don't know, you know, I don't know when I'm going to make a bomb. I don't know when I'm going to have a hit. But I better take as many movies as I can and get as much work as I can because you don't know when the well's going to run dry. And there, there comes a point where you know where you're not you know like De Niro is now at a point in his career and he has been for the last decade where he can really sit down and be like, uh, I'm going to make one movie that I really like that's for me and I don't care if it does well and then I'll do uh, another analyzed Schmageggy movie, you know, or whatever else is one of his franchise hits. Billy Crystal kind of in the same boat. Um, Al Pacino, same boat. You know, a lot of the, a lot of these sort of Tiffany actors who have had, you know, have had Jim Carrey, another example. Jim Carrey just did the latest Kick-Ass movie. And he probably did that because they paid him a lot of money to appear in the sequel, and he knew it was going to be uh, one of the summer, late summer blockbusters. Not that it did well, but I digress. 
Um, and, then Jim Car- and then Jim Carrey will do something like, like the uh, what was the one like the Truman Show, you know that'll be his next movie. You know he'll do something for himself, and then you you know you do one for yourself, one for the business. Yeah. Well, you know a, a couple of funny points to add to that you mentioned Jim Carrey. The, the thing about that the other day, to be honest with you, I really had no intention of seeing Kick Ass two. I think it's completely unnecessary. I loved the first movie. I thought it ended fine. It was a good adaptation of the book. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they got in bed with Mark Millar, and he wrote a sequel book just so they could adapt it into a movie. Fair enough. Uh, I watched uh, Brad Jones, um, his uh, Midnight Screenings review that he did with Jillian Zorowski of uh, Kick-Ass 2, and they both said the same They both said the same thing about it. They both agreed completely that despite the fact that Jim made his whole silly, I'm now anti-violence after the Sandy Hook shooting and I can't in good conscience promote this movie stance, uh, they both agreed that he was arguably the best part of the whole thing. So... In that case, and and earlier this year, I mean, there was uh, the incredible Burt Wonderstone, there, in which, <laughs> amazingly, there he is with Steve Carell in a reversal of kind of what happened when those two were in Bruce Almighty. You had Carell kind of having really hit his ceiling and flattened out in terms of his appeal, and Jim just totally stole the show. It, it, it was just old-school Jim Carrey. Um, so in this case, you've got two movies in a row where Jim has been the best thing in bad-to-average movies, um, which is kind of curious. But my other favorite story of odd casting is the three people who were considered to play Bubba in Forrest Gump. Of course, the role eventually went to uh, McKelty Williamson. I apologize if I mispronounced that name. But before that, historically, the three people they were also considering were David Allen Greer, Dave Chappelle, and Ice Cube. And Dave Chappelle has actually said that turning down the role of Bubba was one of his biggest career regrets. No doubt. It's one of the things that people always remember about that movie is the, uh, you know, the whole shrimp monologue. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's that's the funny thing is when you think about that now, you really can't picture anybody else but McKelty Williamson delivering that. However, it is kind of amusing if if you really sit there and really ponder for a second and really think about one of those three actors. No, I totally see Ice Cube doing it, but it'd have been like I can't, I can't feel my legs, bitch. <laughs> well, and actually, you know, it's kind of funny because Dave is another one where you really gotta want, gotta think that his career has really pivoted, and he's even kind of admitted as much on one decision, and that was uh, he wanted to leave Chappelle's show in part because of the burnout, in part because. He felt like he was kind of holding him back creatively. Um, yep. He's uh, he's historically always kind of thumbed his nose at a lot of his audience, and kind of rightfully so, kind of not. He he seems to resent them because every time he goes to take a stand-up stage, 
He's got all this material that he's probably worked so damn hard to develop because he really is a pretty intelligent guy. Well, I was going to say, but, doesn't this go back to the initial thing we said about, you know, the truth of the matter is your audience is functionally retarded? Well, well yeah, exactly. Dave takes the stage, and every time he does, he has done this multiple times. Um, if he takes the stage and the audience starts heckling him by shouting out the various Chappelle show bits they wanted to do, no, he, he really is his generation's Andy Kaufman because Andy historically always resented it that he had what he thought was all this groundbreaking, brilliant material. He was a comedian. And they wanted comedian. him to do the Mighty Mouse bit. Uh, the, uh, all they wanted was Mighty Mouse, or all they wanted was for him to do Latra Gravis. Um, yep. Recently, uh, Dave was booked for a 30-minute set and got so annoyed a few minutes in with the hecklers that he actually flat out actually flat out told him, you know, leaving my show was the dumbest thing I dumbest thing I ever did. Because no matter what happened, I had to go out and do X minutes of work and I always got work and I knew I was going to get paid for it. And he was getting so annoyed he just said he pretty much just sat there on the stool for almost the full thirty minutes and pretty much insulted the audience the entire time because all they wanted to hear was I'm Rick James, bitch. And which, you know, right. can you blame him? No, no. I mean, look, we. I saw the last bit of this, and then we're going to close out. I saw Dave Chappelle in um, New Orleans a couple of years ago, and aside from the fact that the acoustics were terrible in this place and it was barely audible where we were where we were sitting, a lot of people in the front seat, so it's like all college kids, um, and you know, they're morons. Um, and they, and it, they were doing a lot of what you're saying now, where they were just just yelling at him, and they couldn't, they wouldn't let him do the damn show. And he finally just stopped doing his routine and started insulting them. And was, you know, he was like doing like your mama jokes, basically. And my friends and I were just like, this isn't what we paid for. And we weren't annoyed with him. He was reacting to a hostile situation, uh, and we we didn't blame him for his reaction. We felt bad that the people in the audience were so were so misbehaved. Um, that they they ruined the show, but um, I certainly didn't blame Dave Chappelle for that, and I don't blame him for wanting to quit comedy because what's the point? If, if all you know, he's not a trained monkey and he's not a minstrel. Um, he's not there to do this. You know, the, the, and this is what kills me is that uh, there are people who will be criticized because they because they've done the same thing for like thirty years. It's like, oh well, you suck. You know, why get get a new act? Well, you know, the answer should be, well, I, would try, I tried, and all you wanted to hear was the old shit. You know, I, I, I see this a lot with, with bands, you know, where I saw Def Leppard last year. Def Leppard started off with a new song, and then they played nothing but the hits. And you know what anyone wanted to hear? Just the hits. They want to hear Love Bites. They want to hear Pour Some Sugar On Me. They want to hear Photograph. They don't want to hear whatever the fuck song you just put out there on whatever the fuck album you just recorded. And it's like, well, if you're Def Leppard... And, and a lot of bands do this now. They'll, they'll go out on tour over the summer. They won't put a new record out. Why bother? No one's going to buy it. But I'll be damned if people still want to hear, you know, Poison play, uh, Look What the Cat Dragged In. You know, or they want to hear Every Rose Has a Thorn. And you can you make know, money you know, doing that, especially like going to like theme parks and stuff where they, they need acts to, to, uh, to fill their calendar. If you go to like Universal Studios or Busch Gardens or – or uh, Disney. Jesus Christ, this is the, the like, third, fourth year in a row. I'm going to Epcot to see Sister Fucking Hazel. They never have to put out another album again. 
but they can go to Epcot every single year during the Food and Wine Festival, and I know this because I have to go because I'm my wife, and you know, they play you know, the, the same hits that, the, that all the girls get all wet for, and everyone's happy. So, so wouldn't that consist of just all for you and change your mind? <laughs> God, I wish that's all they played, so I can go home faster. You know, what? One, one of the most opposite acts I've ever seen, actually, uh, of what you just described, believe it or not, the monkeys. Um, and, bless her heart, uh, flew down to Phoenix for a couple of days. Um because for want of the monkeys making a tour stop in Missouri, uh, they uh, were coming to Mesa, as it turns out, which is where I live. Um, and so when she told me that, we made arrangements that she would that she would get a couple of tickets, come out, stay with me for a few days and visit, and we'd go to the show together. Um, I was absolutely amazed because... Two-hour show, more than 20 songs, and they did not limit it to just the hits either. They definitely busted out some surprises. Um, I can't remember the entire set list. She would remember it better than I would. Um, but, I mean, they really varied things up, but they also had the most appreciative audience, easily. Um in which, you know, they, they didn't get to Daydream Believer until, like, the last... It was one of the last about half dozen or so songs that they played, as I recall, I think. But in between, the audience, was, the audience wasn't demanding. They were, they were hanging on every single last note. Totally appreciative the whole, the whole time. They got to hear B-sides. They got to hear hits. They got to hear stuff off the head soundtrack, stuff off headquarters. Um... It, it was it was a great very it was a great varied show, but it was also nice to see the fans not hold them to just wanting to hear a certain set of songs. But, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, so, so so back to Sylvester Stallone. Um, so I mean, so we were just talking. So the whole point of us bringing all that up was, you know, we were just talking about the, the whole idea of. Um, you know, you, you being a talented actor, but sometimes you're defined by the roles that you take. And so, on the one hand.